0: Hey, guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. Turn with me to Matthew 16, and I want to read a passage that uh, you will likely be familiar with. We're going to just begin reading in verse 13. It says this, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's always interesting when Jesus does his like third person thing, you know, he's like talks about himself, but when, when he presents us with questions, especially questions that we don't have an immediate answer to, uh, it's for a reason. And he's drawing out some great principles. So if you're here and you feel like you're getting question marks from the Lord instead of answers, um, don't be discouraged. Jesus always answered questions with more questions. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Basically, who? what are people saying about me? Who do people think I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I want to stop right there because we usually fly past those couple of verses. We usually just kind of rocket through there to get to Peter and the interaction there that we know well, and we're going to get there. Don't uh, stress out about that, but I... I believe that even this part of the, the question, it's, it's part of the Lord wanting us to process through lies in order to get to the truth. And so I want to encourage you this morning just to take some time with me. We're going to work through these for a few minutes. Who do they think I am? If you're writing things down, you can take this one to the bank, and that is that the more we know who Jesus is, the less we care about who he isn't. Amen? The the deeper you fall in love with the Lord, the less concerned you are with, with whatever it is that you think he hasn't done for you yet. Because your confidence grows in who he is and you realize that he knows what you need better than you know yourself. And so I know when we first come in to faith, some of you in here, maybe you're a newer believer and when when you're first presented with the gospel, oftentimes it's it's in the light of well, here's the answer to your problem, here's the solution to your dilemma, here's the direction um, in your lack of clarity or whatever it is, and so we kind of pursue Jesus through this uh, this idea of what we need out of Him. But the more we grow closer to Him, the more intimate that relationship becomes. Uh, if, it, if it's real and genuine and authentic, what ends up happening is over time, we start to become like David, where in the Psalms, it's like, hey, we're still bringing our prayers and petitions. We're not so holy that we're just totally ignorant or negligent of the needs in our lives. But at the same time, we're almost distracted by how great he is and how mighty are his deeds. Amen? Amen. And so I want to encourage you. That's why you'll hear Jamal or myself or worship leaders up here. That's why you'll hear Pastor John or Pastor Kurt encourage us and exhort us to kind of like worship through those needs. Praise through those places, those storms, those trials, those burdens. Because it's in the the awareness and in the ascribing worth to him that a lot of those things kind of like disappear. They fade into the background. It's like, you know, I don't really care about what you're not doing right now, Lord. Lord. I just want to be saturated and consumed by what you're up to. Good. So, but at the same time, the other side of that coin is that an awareness of what lies are being told often helps us in our precision with the truth. Okay? So, how many of you guys have heard this story, you know, when... when, uh, when the uh, Secret Service was first uh, formed, they were formed for the purpose of eradicating the counterfeit rings, counterfeit money rings. Um, and so to this day, the Secret Service is still responsible for overseeing um, you know, legal action around counterfeit monies. And what they would do, and I, people have heard this because you've heard it in how many sermon illustrations? I know, so I'm going somewhere, bear with me. Um, But instead of studying fake money, they just they just spend hours and hours and hours handling the real stuff. And the more you know the real stuff, the more a fake just kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. Right. And it's kind of like, you know, some of this stuff is tricky. It's not like people are trying to pass monopoly money, you know, over the counter at the gas station. It's like this stuff is looks pretty legit. But the more you handle the real thing, you, you the more you know what's not. However, when Christ presents this question to the disciples, it's for a reason because uh, he's at sort of a transitional place. You know, it's in this chapter he starts talking about, he starts uh, foretelling his death and, uh, you know, there's a, the transfiguration is coming up in the next chapter. This is some pivotal moments in the ministry and life of Jesus. But he presents this question because as he's Passing a mantle onto the disciples and beginning to call them apostles, he needs them to understand where the world has gotten it wrong. See, a lot of times, as soon as we find the right answer, as soon as, as soon as the gear clicks into place, we're we're like completely, we just are are totally separated from all the lies that are being told. And we kind of look at it from a hundred thousand feet and we're like, wow, like how far off is that? Not really understanding anymore the thinking behind it. Some of us, you know, when we became believers, what culture was doing, we understood it then because we came out of that culture into our faith. But as we have walked with the Lord, we've kind of switched out that culture for a Christian culture. And to be honest with you, I'm a little concerned about Christian culture, uh, you've probably heard me harp on it before, so I'm not going to get on that soapbox again today. But I'll say this. I think that much of Christian culture is created to, uh, for the sole purpose of becoming a substitute medium for believers so that we can still like, watch similar movies and wear similar clothes and you know, do whatever, but everything's like, done just a little bit differently so it makes it in through the doorway of Christianity. Anybody understand what I'm talking about in here? All right, this is the early service, so you all know. I mean, the second service, I can't preach this message. You know how it is. But you guys get it. The point is this. That Christian culture, what it's really done is it has blinded us to the way the world's culture has developed. So Christian culture isn't moving as fast as the world's culture. Because we're we're constantly trying to mimic the world's culture so that Christians don't feel left out. But it's always lagging behind. It's like it's like some, you know, um, it's like a milk commercial comes out, and then like eighteen months later, people are putting a "Got Jesus" sticker on their bumper. See how it works? Or like the Marvel movies, and then we come up with all the little Christian puns advertising. You get it, right? So we're constantly trying to keep up so that people have some leg over the fence still into the world. And what concerns me about that is we end up missing the the lies the world is really living in because they've already whitewashed them 19 different colors since you got saved. And so the conversations, the philosophies, the stumbling blocks, while it may still be the same old devil, the world doesn't get it. And so if we don't understand what they've fallen for, we're going to have a lot of trouble helping them stand for what we believe. So when Jesus says, what are they saying about me? It's because in order for the disciples to really do their job, they needed to, to understand that language. They needed to be bilingual in a sense. And if they weren't really fully aware of what you know, uh, was going around the Hebrew circles of people who hadn't come over into this thing, and they were kind of still uh, you know, uh, trying to figure this out, and, and they, they had found um, patterns and rhythms to be able to talk about the way and this Jesus and the messianic prophecies that people are saying are fulfilled, but they haven't been convinced yet, they're able to talk about it without actually allowing it to change their lives. So let's walk through some of the responses because I think these are really good. The very first one, John the Baptist. That, that's a compliment. If, if I asked you know, our staff, hey, what do people think of me? And people were like, they think you're like John the Baptist. In fact, you might be John the Baptist reincarnated. I'd be like, I'm winning. Rock and roll. Like, I can, I, can, I can do John the Baptist all day. But I want to talk about these because this is, this is how the enemy propagates lies. Not in, a, not in a something that's so far-fetched or so antithetical that, that it just immediately grates against our nerves. Those are the things that upset us. Those are the things that turn our stomach. Those are the things that keep us up at night. No, the enemy is so much more conscious of our flesh than that. And so what he'll do is he'll seduce us with something that we'd like to hear. He'll seduce us. In fact, the disciples that are charged with going out and casting out demons and and making disciples and changing the world, opening eyes and all this kind of stuff, those very disciples, they probably would have been pretty content to settle for Jesus being misunderstood as John the Baptist. But the Lord is pointing out where the lies are and helping them to understand why these things cannot be as accepted. So we've talked about John the Baptist here, and Pastor John preached a phenomenal message on John the Baptist a few months back. And uh, actually, it was, about a, year, was it about a year ago? I don't know, a little less than a year ago, because you were talking about King's Academy opening and all of the stuff that we had to go through. And uh, it was really, really cool to see how how evident, the Lord has put a sort of John the Baptist type anointing on this church, on his providence. And uh, you can go back and watch that on YouTube and I would encourage you to because there are so many incredible parallels. But it's important to Jesus that he clears up these lies. First of all, John the Baptist was a radical, right? He went out into the desert and he was eating locusts and wearing, and, and honey and wearing like, fur and stuff. Who wears fur in the desert? John the Baptist, you know? He was a radical, but his unconvention unintentionally aided zealots in justifying bad behavior was never his intent. And I I can sort of relate because a lot of the radical things that the Lord has called us to do, if you don't know the Father's heart behind it, You can get really distracted by it. And it can can become uh, an oppositional force to the actual work that John the Baptist himself was trying to do. Jesus says, John the Baptist came, you know, uh, eating locusts and, and out in the wilderness, and you rejected him, but I came with you, like, drinking wine and showing up to your parties. You're rejecting me all the same. He's pointing to a sharp contrast between who John the Baptist was coming to prepare the way for him. Remember, prepare ye the way of the Lord, right? Repent, the kingdom is at hand. He's saying, but please don't mistake me for John the Baptist. Don't mistake me for the purpose of that ministry. There's a big difference between an anticipation of what's coming and a stewardship of what is. I think as believers, sometimes we die on the mountain of anticipation concerning what's coming. That's our favorite thing to do, especially as charismatic, Pentecostal, spirit-filled believers. We love what's coming. It's always about the next thing. It's always about the next conference or the next prophet or the next whatever's coming to town. It's always about the next thing. And saints, this is a really dangerous place to be because... Sometimes our anticipation of what's coming makes us miss the stewardship of what's here. I can't tell you how many, especially back, uh, say our first handful of years, and we would have, we would have the most incredible moments of worship around the altar. People were coming in who had never experienced the presence of God like this. And, you know, we're a few hundred people and and God's just doing, people would come down, prophetic words, kind of like happens now. Um, but, It was still young then, I guess. And so as that stuff's happening, we'd all just be blown away. And I'd be like sweated through nine layers. And at the end of the day, and I'm like can barely walk because just the weight of the glory. And without fail, somebody would come up and they'd be like, we almost got there today. (laughs) Pat me on the back. We were right there at it. Ooh, If we had just gone a little bit further. Like, were you in the same service I was in? Because I was there. I didn't. If I had gone any further, I'd been in heaven. Like, like I was there. And, and, but the problem is we, part of the John the Baptist thing, part of mistaking Jesus showing up for just another John the Baptist is that we're content to talk about preparation instead of actually walking in the purpose because the time is now. Revival is here. It's not coming, it's here. Now, that doesn't mean it's not still coming, but it's not just coming anymore. It means that we have to steward something that has been entrusted to us already. Already. God is already doing miracles. And if we're not careful, we'll do what every other generation has done with them we'll turn them into idols. Thinking that this is all just part of a plan of something that still is yet to come. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. I believe in anticipation. I believe in expectation. And I would encourage anybody to 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 spend your prayer life in anticipation and expectation. But as you walk out your day, know that our prayers for the kingdom to come have been answered. There is still work to be done, yes, but there is something here that we have access to. Ever since the day of Acts, ever since the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, uh, there is something, the Holy Spirit, that we have been entrusted with. And instead of actually operating, instead of deploying that power and being mobilized in that fruitfulness, we would rather say, I'm just waiting on the Lord. I'm waiting. I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting. Are you waiting actively? Are you waiting stewarding? Are you waiting and walking? Because that's what we've been called to. John the Baptist represents the natural high priest, as John talked about. Um, He was in that lineage, and that is who his father was and who he should have been, but he sort of passes the baton to Jesus, who is the perpetual high priest, one who Hebrews tells us would be a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, as opposed to John the Baptist, like all the high priests before him. Now, the, the temple and the function of the high priest had changed from the days of old, but John the Baptist carried that legacy right up to Jesus in order to fulfill prophecy that we don't have time to get into all of it today. And John preached on it and was already good. So end of day, sometimes that John the Baptist thing, it makes more sense. And to the disciples in the gospels, the John the Baptist thing would have been easier pill to swallow. It, it, would, have, it would have made sense that, okay, here's our Messiah, maybe But really what it is, is he's just going to carry on everything we've already known. And saints, that can be one of the most tragic mistakes that we make as believers. Again, we assign these John the Baptist roles to Jesus. Well, he's going to be another high priest, just like we've always known. Maybe he'll be a high priest to reinstate the old way, some of you who live during a glory days period of your life, some of you who look back on the 80s or the 70s or the the 60s or whatever revival uh, your life was changed in, you look back and you say, maybe a move is coming that's going to bring us back around to that. But I'm here to tell you, that wasn't what Jesus was here for. And that's not what he's here for today. Okay. So the next mistake, they say, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah. So let's talk about Elijah. Elijah was known for signs and wonders, really for the first time since Moses. Uh, And Moses' signs and wonders kind of served a different purpose anyway. But Elijah, uh, there were a couple big things that Elijah, they were like the planks in his platform. And Elijah was kind of walking around doing miracles, Now, people see Jesus walking around doing miracles, and that's not a a long bridge to build either, especially in today's age when we see the presence of God showing up, the people of God getting stirred, and miracles happening, signs and wonders happening. But what happened was people began to identify him with Elijah, and there were prophecies that Elijah would show up again, right? We know in the book of Revelation. We know that uh, uh, we're not done with Elijah, But to mistake Jesus for Elijah can be a fatal error in our faith. Elijah, in addition to raising people from the dead and and healing and all this other beautiful stuff, providing supernaturally, miraculously, we love that kind of Jesus, don't we? But sometimes we limit him to that. We also loved about Elijah that he had a, a great political influence. Elijah would um, show up before kings, right? He had this relationship with Ahab that was a little precarious, but at least for uh, you know, conservative uh, members of the way, they look at Jesus and what they're really hoping, what they're really praying is that Jesus is going to have some influence over Rome, that Jesus is going to maybe overthrow the Roman Empire and that he's going he's to be this political savior that they had been praying for the whole while refusing to believe that maybe they'd just been praying for the wrong thing. Now, flash forward 2,000 years. I'm convinced that so often, whichever side of the aisle we're on, we go cast our ballots every four years, voting for a Jesus, voting for a savior. Who's going to turn this country around? Who's going to turn this situation? Who's going to overthrow this? Who's going to pass this law? Who's going to shut these, this legis- Who? Who's going to do all? And, and so we assign messianic qualities to presidents and candidates and governors. And in a way, we're turning Jesus into Elijah. In a way... We're we're opting for a Jesus that solves our problems instead of creates his own answers to questions that we haven't even thought to ask yet. And so I want to encourage you, as as maybe you go back and meditate through this passage, understand that, um, like, yes, Elijah was a voice to governmental thrones, but Jesus comes as a voice from the Father's throne. And see, this is what the kingdom was after all along. This is what was needed to establish the throne of God on the earth. Not somebody that would come in and just shift political regimes, but someone who would come in with a new government on his shoulders. Amen? Oh, y'all are sleepy this morning. It's all right, though. Here we go, last one. He says, some of you are like Jeremiah. Some of you say uh, that, uh, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. We're in the same verse, 14. Still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Let's talk about this for a second. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Jeremiah did not just write the book Jeremiah. He also wrote Lamentations, okay? Real exciting read there. If you're ever just kind of getting ahead of yourself, go ahead and stop and read Lamentations. The weeping prophet demonstrated the chastisement for sin. He he uh, was known for being able to articulate judgment in a really powerful way to a people who were in bondage and in captivity. But in the same way that, in the same way that Jeremiah is grieving what was lost, I think sometimes we um, we accept Jesus. And we identify most with what Jesus grieved over, with what Jesus counted as loss. And so while Jeremiah was grieving what was lost, Jesus comes and teaches us to celebrate what's been found. And if we're not careful, we'll see him and we'll, we'll say, okay, all this stuff that's associated with Jesus, we start assigning the doom and gloom. Of the prophets of old, the, the ones who didn't understand, or well, maybe they did, but at the time, the reality of their culture, okay, was judgment. They were living out judgment. Today, the world may be living out judgment, but as the people of God, we should be celebrating the life that we have. That's what changes the world's attention and heart. They see us consumed with the joy because why? That joy is attached to our salvation. It's not attached to whether or not the the new tax things go our way. And saints, I I think I, I see Jeremiah fulfilling the call of God on his life. But while he's demonstrating the chastisement for sin, Jesus comes demonstrating the pardon for sin. And so to really know Jesus is to know that all things are made new through him, that redemption is ushered into the human race and we have a second Adam and to stop getting hung up on the first. I wanna just go quickly here because I wanna get to this last point. So let's just keep trucking along. So then he says to them, but who do you say I am? In other words, Okay, we've defined some of the lies, some of the substitutes, some of the accepted and settled for answers of who this mysterious guy is walking around, what his purpose is, and what he's doing. Who do you say I am? And so it's Peter, right? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ the son of the living God. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon means son of Jonah. Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter. So not only have I asked you who I am, but now I'm gonna tell you who you are. I say to you that you are Peter, And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Would you stand with me? Who do you say I am? Jesus isn't just looking for someone who only sees him for their sake, but they see him for who he is from the Father. Even when it comes up short to what our expectations were. Aren't you just here to do miracles? If you were real, wouldn't like all this bad stuff in the world not happen? That's like one of my big pet peeves that everybody goes to try to grapple with. I, I can prove God's not real because all this bad stuff wouldn't happen. Really? Another message, another day. You guys have probably heard, many of you have heard that the, the name Peter, it comes from Petra and it means Rock. And so, yes, Jesus is doing like a dad joke here and punning this sort of connection between Peter, who back in John 1 42, he first says to Peter, he first says to Simon, hey, I'm gonna call you Peter. And so that's why some of these gospel writers, they'll write Simon Peter. It's like that guy, Simon, uh, Jonas's son, Simon, yeah but the guy that Jesus calls Peter, like, cause it's not confusing enough with all these different names. So Jesus renames him all the way back at the beginning when he first called him. But nobody knew why until this moment. He says, Peter, Simon Peter. Peter. He says, blessed are you because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. Now, if you grew up Catholic, you um, will have been taught that this is our foundational passage for seeing Peter as the first pope of the Roman Catholic Church. The gates, the keys, the whole nine yards, Peter becomes the first pope. But I wanna challenge this thought some of you will have already heard other messages that talk about, uh, you know, Cephas and the rock and the big rock versus the little rock. And really what he's talking about is Peter's confession of faith that he's acknowledging that he's really the Christ, the son of the living God. But I'll put a, a slightly different spin on it this morning because as I was reading this, um, I, felt like, I felt like the Lord drawn my attention to something I had never seen before. And it's when he calls him Simon Bar-Jonah. The name Simon means having heard, listened, or obeyed. It comes from a root that just means to hear, to obey, to listen. But what's beautiful is he's calling him not just by who, what his name used to be, but by who his father is too. And the name Jonah means dove. And so in this one statement, Jesus is saying to this guy who's now been walking around with him for a while, who's seen him do all these things, who's experienced firsthand what Jesus is capable of. And he says, hey, you, you who've heard the Holy Spirit, you who've listened and obeyed the dove, because you weren't taught these things by flesh and blood, but they've been revealed to you. Let me read it to you again. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, if you understand the Father's heart, then you know that this is what God is longing for. Someone whose ear and heart are turned to heaven. And if we can be a people who don't just take, uh, you know, anything we hear from flesh and blood as the gospel, but we go after heaven, we pursue the Holy Spirit for his heart's revelation in us. I believe that just like Peter, see, Jesus wasn't looking for a pope. He was looking for someone who would hear. He was looking for someone who would be attentive Who wouldn't just show up to let their own supplications and petitions and prayers and needs be known. He was looking for someone who would be listening to the Father's heart. And when that heart is tuned, when our attention is turned on heaven, we become the ones who are hearing. Saints, when we're soft enough to hear the dove, we become strong enough to be foundational to the kingdom of heaven. And that—that that is what the Lord's looking for. That's what he wants in us. The Lord woke me up. It was literally, I don't, I'm not one of those guys that's like always paying attention to like numbers. You know, the people who are like, and then the exit number off the highway was this. And that's how I knew it was God. That's not, I don't usually do that. No, it was 316. I'm like, really? It's kind of, okay. It was 316 this morning. The Lord woke me up with this and it was just this line that because Jesus was fully human and fully God, he was fully man and fully God. There's a little bit of fundamental theology for you there. Fully God, fully man. The spiritual part of him discerned what must be done. But the human Jesus was not able to emotionally process what the divine Jesus was about to accomplish. And we see that in him as he's weeping. We see him in the garden. We see him working this thing out with blood, sweat, and tears. But the supernatural submitted to the natural so that he would know the fullness of our despair, okay? But following the resurrection, the natural then submitted to the supernatural, He's teaching us, right, this mutual submission thing. The the natural then submitted to the the supernatural so that we could know the fullness of our destiny. And saints, I believe that what he wants to reveal this morning and reveals it first to Peter is the idea that if we can, following his resurrection, we know he's alive. If we can bring the natural into submission to the supernatural, If we can can get the flesh parts of ourselves, the things that need to understand, that need to know, the things that want to connect Jesus with John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the other prophets, Jeremiah maybe, that one makes sense because of how bad of a shape this world is in. If we can get past those mental bridges and, and neurological easy pathways, the Lord will use us to do a new thing. He will use us to bring in what he's been longing to bring in. We just have to listen. It means maybe forfeiting some of the stuff that flesh and blood has revealed to you over the years. Maybe some stuff we've learned along the way, some stuff that's become foundational to us, but is not foundational to the kingdom. Maybe some minors that we've turned into majors or some actual majors that we've kind of pushed off into the back seat somewhere. Just getting these subtle things out of order, they distance us just enough that we can start to attach things to Jesus that were never meant to be a part of him. So I wanna encourage you as we close in prayer this morning, saints, to know this, to know that as the kingdom is coming and being built here on the earth, that those keys, that strategy, the blueprints, the work that needs to be done, it happens when we listen. It happens when we turn off the ears to the world that want to make these associations and we bend our hearts to heaven. Amen. So Father help us this morning. Help us to listen to the dove, to submit the natural parts of ourselves. Lord, we thank you that you became fully human so that you would know everything we feel and everything we go through so that you would understand rejection and pain and failure and frustration and discouragement and disappointment. And anger and fear that you, would, that you would stare those things in the eyes just like we have to do every day. But God, I thank you that it didn't stop there. That you brought it full circle to where all of these natural emotions and thoughts and, and processes and 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 philosophies and patterns and ways of life that they all had to submit to the supernatural truth of who you really are. So, Lord, you know the places where we've uh, put you in a box. Maybe places that we're not even aware of, but because of some bad teaching or, or, or weird theology or just something where we, we added two plus two and accidentally came up with four instead of 29, like how your math works. God, I pray that you would help to undo those things in us. Wherever we'd, we've settled for a John the Baptist or an Elijah or a Jeremiah, wherever we've pursued you uh, in part and not in whole. God, I pray that your bride this morning would hear those instructions to seek you while you may be found in your fullness, in your glory. We love you, Lord, and we give you all the honor. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes love you guys. God bless you and have the best day of your life.